This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. We want to continue this morning, basically where we left off last Sunday morning and Sunday night, speaking about the mystery and the miracle of Israel. And uh, this particular uh, week is part three, Israel and the church. Uh, I I want to, I'll I'll be finishing this tonight, by the way. There's tons more you could say, but I think just the four uh, is is enough at this particular uh, juncture in order to inform you and to help you to pray more intelligently regarding Israel because Uh, This is going to be a major, major talking point in the days that lie ahead. Uh, Israel's never out of the news, but it's going to be much more in the news uh, in the days that lie ahead. So we need to know a little bit about it. We need to know our connection with Israel uh, as the church, the church worldwide, what our connection with Israel is. And so this is part three, Israel and the church. Now, Israel's history with the church uh, sadly has not been a good one. Some of the early church fathers, uh, well, they said things that were often very uncomplimentary. They used language that that down through church history has inflamed anti-Semitism. And uh, it's become a weapon in the hands of the anti-Semites. And that has left uh, a scar on the psyche uh, of Jews around the world. And uh, through the Crusaders, and the Spanish Inquisition and things like that, the cross itself has become a symbol to them of oppression and persecution. Uh, Even to the extent where in schools, where we use the plus sign in the maths, uh, that they changed that sign because it resembled too much like a cross to them. Uh, I want to just give you a few examples of the inflammatory language that was used Uh, particularly by early church fathers, and even up to the day of Luther uh, a few centuries ago. And uh, I I must tell you that if you don't know this, you'll probably be shocked at what you're going to uh, see on the screen, the words that you're going to read. Uh, But they're true. This is what they actually said, and it has caused uh, major problems ever since. Uh, First of all, origin of Alexandria. Uh, ecclesiastical writer and teacher who contributed to the early formation of Christian doctrines. And here's what he said, We may thus assert in utter confidence that the Jews will not return to their earlier situation, for they have committed the most abominable of crimes in forming this conspiracy against the Savior of the human race. Hence the city where Jesus suffered was necessarily destroyed, and the Jewish nation was driven from its country, and another people was called by God to the blessed election. Now I want you to notice, as we read through these, you'll see a common thread. And the common thread in all of these basically is uh, that the Jews were the killers of Christ. And then, if we continue on... Sorry, let me just go back a little bit here. John Christosom, who was one of the greatest of the church fathers, known as the golden-mouthed missionary preacher, famous for his sermons and addresses, he said, The synagogue is worse than a brothel. It is the den of scoundrels, 
and the repair of wild beasts, the temple of demons devoted to idolatrous cults, the refuge of brigands and debauchees, and the cavern of devils. It is a criminal assembly of Jews, a place of meeting for the assassins of Christ, a house worse than a drinking shop, a den of thieves, a house of ill fame, a dwelling of iniquity, the refuge of devils, a gulf and an abyss of perdition. I would say the same thing about their souls. As for me, I hate the synagogue and I hate the Jews uh, for the same reason. And then Augustine, how hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. How I wish that you would slay them, the Jews that is, with your two-edged sword, so that there should be none to oppose your word. Gladly would I have them die to themselves and live to you. John Calvin, in response to questions and objections of a certain Jew. Their rotten and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, that they may die in their misery without the pity of anyone. And I think probably the most inflammatory of all of the statements that certainly had a, an impact uh, during the last World War uh, was by Martin Luther. Now, something you need to know about Luther, Luther in his early ministry uh, was favorable to the Jews. In fact, he had friends among the Jews. Uh, but naturally, he would try to preach the gospel to them, and they refused it. And the more he tried to reach them, the more they rejected him. And in the end, he turned against them and became an implacable foe against them. And so... There's a lot of writing in this, so let me just read it to you. This is called On the Jews and Their Lies. What then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us and we know about their lying and blasphemy and cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curses and blasphemy. In this way, we cannot quench the inextinguishable fire of divine rage nor convert the Jews. We must prayerfully and reverentially practice a merciful severity. <laughs> Perhaps we may save a few from the fires of flames of hell. We must not seek vengeance. They're surely being punished a thousand times more than we might wish them. Let me give you my honest advice. And then he goes on to heap more upon them. First, their synagogues should be set on fire. And whatever does not burn up should be covered and spread over with dirt so that no one may ever be able to see a cinder or stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity, in order that God may see that we are Christians and that we have not wittingly tolerated or approved such public lying and cursing and blaspheming of his Son and his Christians. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed, for they perpetrate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. For this reason they ought to be put under one roof or in a stable like gypsies. That reminds you of uh, the times of the ghettos, doesn't it? In order that they may realize they are not masters in our land, as they boast, but miserable captives, 
as they complain of incessantly before God with bitter wailing. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds in which such idolatry lies and cursing and blaspheming are taught. Fourthly, the rabbis should be forbidden under threat of death to teach any more. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews, for they have no business in the rural districts since they are not nobles or officials or merchants or the like. Let them stay at home, and if you princes and nobles do not close the road legally to such exploiters, then some troop ought to write against them, for they will learn from this pamphlet what the Jews are and how to handle them, that they, may, they, they ought not to be protected." You ought not, you cannot protect them unless in the eyes of God you want to share in all their abomination. To sum up, dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable devilish burden, the Jews. Such a desperate, thoroughly evil, poisonous, and devilish lot are these Jews, who for these 1400 years have been and still are our plague, our pestilence and our misfortune. And that's shocking, isn't it? And to think that this was the great reformer, this was the man who changed the spiritual map of the whole continent of Europe, and thank God he did. We mightn't be sitting here today if he didn't. Certainly wouldn't be in this church if he didn't. And so he was a great man. These were great men. But they had this attitude against the Jews that comes through in their, in their writings, uh, particularly Luther towards the end of his ministry. Now, you can easily see then how Hitler himself uh, used uh, this, these writings of Luther uh, whenever it came to justifying uh, his full-scale attack against the Jews on the night of November the 9th, 1938. This massive coordinated attack on the Jews throughout the whole German Reich, uh, we'll show you a map in a moment how far this spread, became known as Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht in German means crystal night, but it became known as the night of broken glass. And all over the country, in one night, in a coordinated attack, uh, their shops were destroyed. Their homes were broken into and looted and burnt. They were beaten up on the street. The German police stood there along with the crowds and did nothing, while members of the SS and the stormtroopers and Hitler Youth beat and brutalized any Jews, men, women, and children that they could find. And in the end, 25,000 of them were dragged away to concentration camps. And above all, they burned the synagogues and they burned their scrolls and their Talmuds. Everything that Luther said they should do, they did and more. And those words that were spoken some 500 years ago almost came true in 1938. And if I can just point out a few things, if you could put those lights out there, fellas, please. If I could just point out a few things, you can see the shops being destroyed, but look at the smile on her face. The German people knew what was going on. They could see it. 
It was in every town. It was in every city. Look at the synagogues been burned all over. Look at their homes. Look at them fleeing for their lives. Warning, Jews. Achtung, Juden. And so you can imagine this must have been a, a fearful, intimidating time for Jews in Germany. This, this was the precursor to the Holocaust. This was the beginning of it. And they were in no doubt that their lives were going to be in danger from that point on. And, and the word began to spread around the world. And governments around the world condemned it. But they did nothing. 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 And when it came to the Holocaust, they did nothing. Can you imagine if all of Ireland right now, that if every Christian in Ireland, north and south, in every church, in every chapel, in every place that worshipped God, can you imagine if suddenly in one night everywhere was burned and all of us were driven from our homes and beaten and brutalized and murdered in one night, the whole nation? That's what it was like in Germany. There's a map where every dot on that map represents a city in Germany where synagogues was burned, where Kristallnacht happened, and Austria, Sudetenland, East Prussia, everywhere where the Nazis held control. And it says that dots represent select cities where synagogues were destroyed. Because of the map scale, not all cities affected by Kristallnacht can be shown or labeled. And so this was a massive, coordinated, orchestrated attack in every synagogue and every Jewish person and every Jewish business and every Jewish home that they could find. And uh, it's just absolutely terrible when you think about it, isn't it? And so you can see from these quotations that we read a few moments ago that, that the heart of the vitriol was against the Jews was what they labeled as Christ killers. And that's why they believed that God had finished with the Jews that he had no more plans or purposes for them as a people, that now he had replaced them with the church. The church now was the, his purpose and his affections was all placed upon the church, that he was completely finished with the Jews. Now he's, his plans and purposes are with those who love his son, not those who killed his son. But whenever you read the book of Acts, does it not say in the day of Pentecost that twice in Peter's sermon that he said, and I'll quote, that they had crucified the Christ, that they had put him to death? Did he not, Peter not say in Acts 3 and 4 that they killed the Prince of Life, that they crucified Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Yes, he did. Did Stephen in his defense in Acts 6 and 7, did he not say that they were betrayers and murderers? Absolutely. That's true. But we must not forget what Peter said in Acts 3, 
17 and 18. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. They did it in ignorance. And Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But ignorance is not innocence. They were not innocent. For sure, they and the Gentiles killed, crucified the Christ. No question about that. But they did not understand the ramifications. They did not understand that this was in the plan of God from before time began. And this is one of the mysteries of Israel. And so God in his wisdom... He would use their unbelief, their ignorance, their blindness to fulfill his greater purpose, and that was to bring the Savior of the world into the world and for him to be crucified for the whole world. The Apostle Paul again in Romans eleven twenty five, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Notice he said that blindness in part, it wouldn't last forever. The blindness would be partial but not permanent. And it's still partial. There's still a veil over their eyes. Still hard to reach them with the gospel. Although many are being reached today, much more than ever has been. But one day that veil will be lifted. And they will see Jesus as Yeshua, their Messiah, the Christ. And they will receive him as that. But not yet. And so over the years, when it comes to Christians evangelizing Jews, you can begin to understand now the sticking points. Words like crusade, mission, evangelization. These are words that they stumble over. They do not like it. And so they must be reached for Christ. There's no question about that. They, they must be reached just like anybody else must be reached. They are lost in their sins like everybody else is lost in their sins. But how are we going to do that? Well, probably the better way is not just to buttonhole them because they have a long history that's not very good relating to the church. They can go back a long way and the church has not been kind to them. So the best way is to show a generosity of spirit and a kindness and where and when we can to have uh, do good deeds for them, to try to win them over with love, show them appreciation because we owe them a great deal. We owe them the scriptures, the oracles of God. Uh, we owe them the prophets. We owe them all of that, and above all things, we owe them for the Lord Jesus Christ 
who was born a Jew. And so there's much we should be grateful for and thankful for. And where and when we possibly could, they need to know that. Now, I know that, and I've said this before, that there's a very, very, very few Jews live in Northern Ireland right now. Very few. Very, very small community. And there are those who are reaching out to them, Christians, in love. I said to you last week, there's meetings in the synagogue and Rabbi Singer, he would share on Solomon or Moses or whatever. And, and I've been at those, and some of you have been at the places packed with Christians, encouraging them, letting them know that you're not alone. And that's good. We ought to do that. Now, two things regarding Israel and the Jews must take place. All of these things, by the way, relates to us. All of it is going to relate to the church one way or another. And as the day approaches for Christ's return, it will be even more so. I keep telling you the two most persecuted groups in the world today are Jews and Christians. By far. That's not by accident. <laughs> so two things must take place. There must be a return to the land and then a return to the Lord. There must be a political restoration, if you could use that term. A national restoration, physically going back to the land. But there has to be a spiritual restoration before Christ comes. So these two things go together, and there's an order to it. The physical first, then the spiritual. The return first to the land, and then return to the Lord. And right now, as we speak, the first one has taken place. The return to the land. The return to the Lord hasn't happened yet. It will, but not yet. So let me just remind you of these two scriptures. Jeremiah 32, verse 37 to 39. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger and in my wrath and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. There's the return to the land. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. There's a return to the Lord. Ezekiel 36, verses 23 to 25. For I will take you out of the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you back to your own land. There's a return to the land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. There's the return to the Lord. So there's an order. And it's happening as we speak right now. So God is doing something. He's moving. And he's bringing them from all nations. From China, from India, from Ethiopia, from Africa from America, from Britain, from France, from Germany, from every, from Hungary, from Ukraine, all nations, from the islands of the sea. He's bringing them back as he intended them. And so the first part is being remarkably fulfilled today. Malcolm Heading, who is a former director of the ICEJ, the International Christian Embassy of Jerusalem, and... Uh, Derek Prince, who many of you know, some of you have got his writings and his books, 
Uh, he notes, both of these men note the amazing turn of events since 1917. 1917 was when Britain uh, got the mandate for all of what was called Palestine. Let me quote some of their statements regarding this. And this is fascinating. Uh, this is God at work here. And so, William Hackler, who was an Anglican clergyman, he was a son of a Hebrew scholar, he can be, became absolutely convinced through just studying the Bible, studying the prophecies of Scripture, absolutely convinced that 1897 was going to be a crucial year for the restoration of the Jewish state. He had nothing else to go on other than the Bible, his studies of the Scriptures. And he was absolutely right. For 1980, sorry, 1897, Theodore Herzl became the, called the first World Jewish Congress in 70 AD, which met in Basel in Switzerland. And at this Congress, Herzl proclaimed the restoration of the Jewish state. Hadn't got it yet, but he proclaimed it. He opened the Congress with these words. We are here to lay the foundation stone of the house, which is to shelter the Jewish Nation. Now remember, this is 1897. It seemed impossible. There was no chance. It was ridiculous. It was a crazy statement. But God was in it, you see. In November 1917, Britain passed the Balfour Declaration. Lord Balfour was a politician, paving the way for a Jewish homeland to be reestablished in Palestine. The important part of the declaration ran as follows. This is what he said. His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for a Jewish people. And so things are moving. God's shaping things up. He's dealing with individuals. Now he's dealing with governments. It is no coincidence that that same year and that same month, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia took place. And Russia from then on would be a thorn in the flesh of Israel. For years and years, they refused visas for Jews to go back to Israel. They can go back now. But you know and I know that prophetically, Russia is going to be one of the nations that will come against Israel in the last days. Then on December the 9th, 1917, General Allenby liberated Jerusalem from Turkish domination. And on that same day, the Jews lit their candles to celebrate the Festival of Lights. On the 14th of May, 1948, the State of Israel was proclaimed in Tel Aviv by David Ben-Gurion. Now listen to this. This happened exactly 50 years after Herzl's prophetic statement in 1897. You had 50 years on that, it's 1947, which just then ushers in 1948, which is what? The year of Jubilee. It just happened to be in God's purposes, the year of Jubilee, which means that all property rightfully goes back to its original owners. <laughs> and in that year, 1948, 14th of May, when it became a nation again in one day, another scripture fulfilled, then a good part of Palestine came back into 
the hands of Israel again. And also in 1948, something else happened, which has never, ever happened in history. The Hebrew language, which had been dead for 2,000 years, was revived and resurrected again. And this was due to the tireless efforts of one man, Eliezer ben Yehuda. And he took it upon himself to resurrect the ancient language, which today is one of the two official languages in Israel, Hebrew and Arabic. Their signs is written in Hebrew and Arabic. It is said that King David, if he came back today, could book himself into the King David Hotel in Jerusalem speaking the language he spoke 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, whatever it was. That has never, ever, ever happened before in history. So God is doing something. He's on the move. He's bringing pieces of the jigsaw back together. Zephaniah 3 and 9, For I will turn to the people a pure language that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. A wonder is that what Zephaniah was hinting at. And then sixthly, 1967, Jerusalem was once again liberated and placed under Israel's sovereignty. 1967, as you know now, was the Six-Day War. Whenever Israel defeated those nations who had come against it, and they took back the West Bank from the Jordanians. The Jordanians had been controlling Jerusalem, Israel's ancient capital city. And they had desecrated their holy sites, had even desecrated their very graves. For 1967, in that short war, Israel took it back again and took control of their capital after thousands and thousands of years. This was the fulfillment of Jesus' words in Luke 21, 24. And they, the Jews, will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now get this. This happened exactly 50 years after Allenby first liberated Jerusalem from the Turks in 1917. And again, 1967, just happened to be the year of Jubilee <laughs> when all properties would rightfully go back to their original owners. So what you're seeing over these few years is the Word of God being fulfilled before your very eyes. And it's absolutely marvelous to see it, isn't it? And so I understand this morning that last week and this week, it's not meeting your felt need. Every one of us has felt needs. We need healing in our bodies. We need situations maybe in our finances. We need situations regarding our jobs, our homes, our families, whatever. Felt needs. So this is not meeting any of those. We do sermons that does that, but this is not those that we're speaking of this past two weeks. But what I want to show you is that God is in control of this world. He's in control of the nations of this world. There's nothing going on that he doesn't know about that he can't handle. 
and that he's moving in this world, bringing his word to pass. The prophets, thus saith the Lord, is brought to pass. Things I preached about 30 years ago from this pulpit has happened since that. Then we were looking forward to seeing it happen. Now it's happened. In just a few decades, it's happened before our eyes. So that should encourage us. If God is controlling this world, then surely he can control our lives. If he's in charge of that, he's in charge of us, isn't he? So all of us have got felt needs, but we need to trust him for those felt needs and say, Lord, you're a big God. You're doing things on a world stage. You're changing nations. You're making things happen to whole continents. Therefore, you can meet my need. You can bless me. I want just to end this with, it's, it's almost an aside, but I think it's just interesting for you to know. I'm going to show you three photographs. This first one that's on the screen. First of all, obviously it's Jerusalem. That's the Dome of the Rock. That whole area up there, above there, is the, the Temple Mount area. You see it on the news all the time. And there's two things on that. There's the Dome of the Rock, which is there. But then there's the Alaska Mosque, which you can't see in that photograph, which is also up there, which is a working everyday mosque. But the Dome of the Rock, now this Temple Mount is a very, very important area for both the Jew and the, the Muslim. The three great Abrahamic religions are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so this particular site is a very contentious area uh, because it's held very dear to both the Jew and to the Muslim. So there's constantly tensions regarding this. And the Dome of the Rock, by the way, that is gold. That is real gold. King Hussein of Jordan in 1993 sold one of his London homes. And he bought 82 kilograms of gold to furnish that dome. He spent $8.2 million doing that. My van, at that time, one of Northern Ireland's leading construction businesses, furnished that. So it's a very important Jewish, very important Muslim site, the Temple Mount. Now, the reason why the Dome of the Rock is so important, the rock actually is the foundation stone there where the Jews believed, because this area was Mount Moriah, that's where uh, Abraham took Isaac to slay him in obedience to God. The Muslim tradition is that it wasn't Isaac, but it was Ishmael he was going to slay. So there's a big difference there. But the Muslims also believe that that area, the Dome of the Rock, right underneath there where that stone is, that that's where Muhammad was taken up into heaven with the angel Gabriel to speak to Abraham and Moses and Jesus. So it's important for them. So there's lots of reasons why this is important. It's also important because Solomon's temple was built there and Herod's temple was there. 
And so that's why you have this here. We'll show you a better photo of this in a moment. The Western Wall, or the Wailing Wall, as it's commonly known, which is uh, one of the most holy sites and important sites for Jews today to go to to pray and to put their little prayer requests in the cracks of the walls. Some of you have been there. I've been there. Several of you have been there. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, so that whole area is very, very... That, by the way, you can see that's, that's where the, the call, the Muslim call to prayer goes out five times a day in loudspeakers. You'd, you'd hear it 10 miles away. It's very, very, very loud. I'm sure much to the nines of the Jews, but there you go. And uh, so let me just flick on to another one. And there is the, uh, the Western Wall. The Western Wall was a retaining wall uh, for Herod's temple. So it was just a big retaining wall. The stones are massive. Look at that stone there, look. Absolutely massive. Huge. And of course, behind all of that then was, was where the, the temple mount area and where the, the temple proper was. You can see the people all lining up to pray. By the way, ladies, you're on the other side of that barrier. Sorry about that, but that's just the way things are there. You can see lots of soldiers about. Now, lots of them are just coming to pray uh, at, at the Western Wall. And just in there, nothing's working right today. Just in there, there's a, a, a sort of a, a big room in there where... where where the, the Talmud and the Torah is taught, uh, you know, where the rabbis teach. And so it's a very, very important site that. There's yours truly. There's, oh, sorry, there's the old fellow there. Look, you see, he's, he's got it. Well, you can hardly see it. He's got a wee white kipper, kipper on there on his head. Gary took that photograph. But we were down there at the wall praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And uh, there's, there's the ladies looking behind there. Look, you see the barrier? There you go. And so, these are very important sites. And uh, you'll see them on your television screens. Uh, and Israel is constantly, continually being under pressure politically to do deals, to make bargains, to give this, to give that, to give the other. And as we said last week, no matter what they give, it's never going to be enough. Uh, because the Muslims and the Arabs do not want the Jews there. There are, certainly there are Israeli Arabs who live there and enjoy every right as citizens and so forth. But the vast majority of Arabs, certainly, around the, around the surrounding countries, they want every Jew out of that country. So they just don't want a piece of it. They want all of it, but they want every Jew out of it. And so they're fighting for their lives just even to be there. So that's why we need to pray for them. Now tonight, as we finish, I want to deal with three or four very important subjects that you need to know uh, regarding uh, Israel. The two Israels. There's natural Israel and there's spiritual Israel. Who's spiritual Israel? You see, because those who have replaced Israel with the church believes, well, that's us, but it is natural Israel. But out of natural Israel, there is a true Israel, a spiritual Israel. So we'll come to that. What about Israel's belief and unbelief? How does that affect us? How does that bless us and indeed the rest of the whole world? 
because Israel had belief and unbelief. How does that fit in with us? What about the, the one olive tree that we have been grafted into? What's that about? Why is that? How important is that? So as I said in, in a previous study, we were inextricably linked to Israel. But God has got one family. He's got one flock. <laughs> There's one body. There's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. How does that all fit in with Israel and the church? We'll do that tonight, and we'll end with that tonight. There's tons and tons more we could talk about, but we're not going to. We'll end it tonight at that. Amen? Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.